out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of musician Rob Miller, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. One time member of the um, rock punk band from the 80s, Amoebics, but has recently been in a band titled Tau Cross, who's been quite active in the last couple of years and has got hopefully new material coming out soon and also and this is another exciting fact about Rob's amazing life is that he is a um, swordsman as in he makes fantastic swords daggers and also jewelry so um, yes I will put the link to his website um, on this page because his work is absolutely stunning. Anyway, look, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, such a predictable start. But anyway, enjoy. Well, I, I listened to the um, the broadcast that you had with my brother Stig, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of interesting for him um, bringing up his his early sort of obsession with Bowie and things like that. And I was I was a yeah a couple of years underneath where he was. So I didn't, that wasn't really what turned me on to music, but it was, I was the uh, T-Rex Slade kind of thing. Um, and the first album I got, 20, 20 fantastic original hits was people like Procol Harum and The Move um, and Joe Cocker, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex and T-Rex, um, a compilation of fantastic songs that would I think you know at that, that that age when you you're so open to influence um those a lot of those artists went on to influence me throughout my life and still to a great degree do particularly um not not through style or genre or anything like that but through the imagine the imagination that, that they had particularly people like Prokuharam and obviously people in the in the glam era and the late hippie era as well were very um were very keen on getting across uh visual ideas through mm. lyrics and that's what that's what i really picked up on stuff like conquistador and things like that so it 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 was a discovery for me of an internal landscape and something which was really exciting that other people could put ideas into Yes, absolutely. Because I guess, I mean, it was quite an interesting kind of period and, and there was some, such an opening and such a change. I mean, I always thought it was a bit strange because if you're you know, living through the 60s period, there must have been a really odd moment, you know, like we get very upset when someone dies, which is obviously a good response. But to have people like Luz and Jimi Hendrix, you know, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and then Brian Jones the year before. And then, you know, the 60s kind of felt such an end to have something that sort of came along and picked it up again, like the glam period. I can see why the people in the 60s kind of didn't go with that so much because it must have looked just so bizarre. But then, you know, from that, you know, you got the rock period and then you got this prog rock period as well, which obviously I had an older brother who who I sort of, I suppose, loved and worshipped a bit. And he was in the, you know, Genesis and Wishbone Ash and, you know, Barclay, James Harvest, all those kind of artists. And so I sort of followed him because that's what you do when you're a young kid, I suppose, and you look up to your brother. So I got very kind of excited by this otherworldly stuff, really. And for some reason, hippies kind of really appealed to me. I don't know why, but my parents were not at all alternative. But um, yes, it, it does. Everything has a big influence, really. 
well, you and I have both uh, both got the same year of birth, so we're both both the same age. <clears throat> but I have to say, I wasn't really aware of any of the hippie stuff apart from the ubiquitous Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But I wasn't really interested in either of those. I was still kind of in my childhood at that time, and didn't really, I think, didn't start to gravitate toward anything musically until I was maybe 11, 12 years old. And the, I think the first single was Slade, it's like, come on, feel the noise or something like that. Um, or, or, you know, it was a mixture of that and T-Rex. It would be a case of um, spending any pocket money that I had in the local music shop in Callington in Cornwall um, and having putting a single on. And the, you know, back in the days where you will remember very well that if you hadn't heard of a band and you didn't know who they were, but you liked the, the album cover, you'd buy it. And it didn't matter whether the, the album itself was absolute rubbish. You would force yourself to like it because it had cost good money. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> cherished and you understood like nobody else did. Yes, you forced yourself to keep playing it for three ninety nine yeah. because it took so long to invest that money to uh, buy. But I also I remember my brother had one of these uh, books, which was like I don't know five hundred essential albums, and I remember going to the record library and sort of trying to find them all occasionally thinking that sounds really interesting I'll try and buy it and one day finding a copy and being a bit freaked out like the Velvet Underground um I always get it confused with the film yes Velvet Underground you know and it was like oh Sunday morning comes on that's a bit different and then you know you start listening to the rest of it and you feel a bit violated by the end don't you but you think that's kind of curious and then you sort of keep working often with vinyl it was like you play side one to death and then one day you just turned over and and then sort of tackled side two and sometimes that was quite painful but I found mm-hmm. with the work of Elvis Costello it was all right it was like still good stuff I don't know it was probably my blockage in life but I, I always found tackling side two was just something that I had to work through even as a young boy mm, I loved <laughs> so, Elvis Costello yes well. I, I, I did like Elvis I mean he was against the grain for a lot of people back at that time because he wasn't really I suppose New Wave was was a was a title that was given to a lot of this stuff, but you know he was a he was a great musician, a great songwriter. Yes, absolutely, and and you know, and I remember talking to the bassist Pete Thomas, and it was just like God, you know, you just must have you had that period, you know, it was like an album a year, a bit like David Bowie, it was like this album a year during the seventies with Bowie, as well as relocating, as well as producing other people's work, and Elvis Costello, also his body of work from the late seventies into the eighties was like. How did you cope? And obviously, you know, eventually it all explodes in a in a technicolor dream of bitterness, really, doesn't it? But then, <laughs> you know, there's a funny anecdote there is when I was I was across in LA one time working with Roy, and uh, I've I've had a, a history of back problems since I started the job that I do. So I went to find a local osteopath. I'm sitting there in the um, in the waiting room, and there's a there's a guitar there, and there's a record on the on the wall, and all this kind of stuff. It turns out that this guy played for Elvis Costello as the bassist at one time. Now, I don't know whether that was for just one album or something like that, but I don't know whether the same guy that you're talking about ended up as an osteopath in, in LA. <laughs> God, that's amazing, actually. Well, actually, mm, I'm not sure. He was he, he became, because he got mugged one night and then he learned to martial art and um, became an expert on, on the work of Bruce Lee and writes uh-huh. books on Bruce Lee now. So, um, don't mess with Pete Thomas, that's what I say. Oh, but look, yeah. what were your, I mean, did you have a musical, were your parents at all musical? Did they have a kind of, um, you know, record collection that you used to listen to and sort of become quite engrossed with? Mm, they weren't musical at all, but they had a record player and they had a few records around. Um, and the one that we would play, no, two that we played a lot as kids, and that was Nancy and Lee, um, 
who that was that was Nancy Sinatra, wasn't it? And, yes. And the, the, the guy with the deep voice. Um, and uh, there was Bridge Over Troubled Water. Right. Classic. Which is still a great album. You know? It's a classic, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that was another one of my brother's albums um, that, that I kind of was... I think actually at that age, and, and now you mentioned it, um, I was a bit obsessed with lyrics because we'd also had a Carpenters album. And as a young boy, listening to the words of the Carpenters, I found them quite mesmerising, actually, and so emotional. Um, mm. And and it was and and still to this day I can see why I like bands like Joy Division and The Smiths because it was all a bit like, yes, a disappointment of love and life and relationship yeah. really. So um, yes, and and uh, yeah. and Simon and Garfunkel, you know, I am a rock, just always present. You know, it's like my God, that's a bit sad. But um, yes, yeah. I don't need anyone. But then when so did you leave school at sixteen? Yeah, I did. Yeah, this, this as soon as my... I could get out of there, I got out. The comprehensive that. I went to was at the uh, at the time it was the largest one in England I believe because it had two thousand pupils and it was this massive like sprawling um, school several different sort of departments over a over a massive load of fields uh, in Tavistock in Devon so it's a little little stannery town uh, market town with this massive comprehensive in it and the, the consequence I suppose of of having such a large school was there were large classrooms and there was not really any attention given to to the, the curriculum by the teachers or the kids as such it just seemed to be somewhere you would have to get out of as quickly as possible or kind of processing plant really for nearby Plymouth which was the forces so you'd you'd either um, join the marines or, or the navy or the dockyard and that was basically your primary cho choices in life um, but I I'd already as, as, ascertained by that time that it that wasn't really where I was going to be going no, thank God, that's a bit scary, actually. So did you n manage to avoid those those three choices the careers officer gave you? Mm, I did, I, but I I was a cadet with the um, the ATC down there, which I really, really did enjoy, which is great. Um, and I, I went through, I became a sergeant by the time I was, uh, I was 16, I'd left school. And um, I went on the Nijmegen marches down in Holland, which is a, a yearly event where, the Allies recreate the um, the Arnhem landings and all this kind of stuff, you know, the, the, the liberation of the Dutch, um, by having 6,000 odd troops from all over the world uh, congregate together in this big forest and march for 20 miles a day. At the end of that, for a week, um, you would, uh, you know, you get a medal and a celebrate and go home. So as a kid, I, I got involved with um, some American GIs who some of them were, were Vietnam and Korean veterans. And obviously they'd take me under their wing and say, you know, we've, we've, we want to take you out on the town and show you, show you your way around. And I was a young, impressionable kid. We went out, they filled me full of beer and uh, dropped me back in, on this bus at three o'clock in the morning. I'm wandering down through the, the site with a big American cigar shoved in my mouth um, without realizing that I'd been, counted as missing and they'd had the military police out looking for me all this this kind of stuff so I got the front and center from the the offices in the morning and they said you know you've got to, you you've got to buck your ideas up um by that time I'd already decided that I kind of liked punk rock and my brother had come back from Jersey with a guitar and a tiny practice amp and suggested that we maybe start a band so that was an opening really at that time and it's probably probably the worst thing I could have possibly done but uh, there it was there you go. Yes, I know. It's so many people. I know. I know. I did, I did an interview with the guy from Captain Beefheart's band, John. 
John, John, Trumbo, Trumbo. Anyway, he sort of was like, I sort of said, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? He said, don't play drums and join Captain Beefheart's band. It, was the it would have been a disaster. But yes, it's kind of one of those ones, isn't it, really? It's a kind of a love-hate relationship. So when did you sort of, I mean, because, because you know, roughly being that same age, no one at school, which I went to, really got into bands. We were into sort of, I don't know, it was the rural countryside. It was playing football and messing about, but no one ever took that leap. So how did you sort of get the confidence to think, yes, I'm going to be in a band or the knowledge to sort of start a band? Well, I, I, there were quite a lot of kids around us in school that were into bands, but if they were, it would be the the normal sort of prog stuff. You know, I, I mean, I have to admit, I grew up with Supertramp and ELO and I really liked that too, but I'd moved on by that time, by the time that punk rock came around. Um, but there were still people that would be, you know, have little Genesis things on their bags and this or whatever it was. And I knew that wasn't the sort of stuff for us. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the decision to make a band, um, that was prompted by my brother, but also a small inversioning music scene that was emerging around the Tamar Valley at the time too. A lot of it was like crass, really, ex-hippies who'd um, put together bands um, and loosely slotting themselves into the, the, the new wave genre at the time um, with you know, some degree of, of, of competence and others not so much. And we were, we were the youngsters who were tagging onto the end of that so we could get the opportunity to play at the same places that they'd be playing at. Yes. Was this the same area? My geographies might not be great down there, but there was people like Culture Shock and Blythe Power and a lot of those kind of anarcho-punk bands in that kind of general region. Is that a bit further west? Yeah, that, and that's later as well, a lot later. That's Wiltshire. And this right. was South Devon in the, in, the, in the late 1970s. Right. So um, Stig and I started the band with my school friend, Billy Jug on drums and, and Clive Barnes uh, from Horrorbridge on the bass. Uh, and we were, well, us, us um, younger ones were all 16 and Stig was two years older than us. So we just loved the idea of starting a band and playing around, getting canned off stage, being really, really, really bad. I mean, horrendously bad we were, but the, the door was open for anybody to have a go at it back then because you have people like John Peel champion, championing um, completely uh, terrible musicians um, as well as very competent people uh, and you had the like sniffing glue fanzine um, yes. who put out this very, the, the addition saying well here's three chords now go and form a band and we were very literally said well okay or we'll, we'll give it a go but we didn't have the the requirement that, that goes along with that, which is being able to tune guitars, because we didn't know anything about that. So we just played these strings in the same place. It's mm -hmm. a story that both Stig and I tell time and time again, so we'd never have a song that ever sounded the same. <laughs> I know there's a lot of chat recently because of this... Um... This this program on not program but series on by Steve, about Steve Jones isn't it from the Sex Pistols and his kind of learning to play guitar sort of I think he just took some speed and then just kind of just rehearsed or practiced for sort of hours on end until he was you know bar chords I think that was it wasn't it? he just focused on bar chords and thought right I've just about got it but he was very focused wasn't he from going from a beginner to making a sound and sticking with it so I guess it, it was that practice and also during that period of 79 to 80 I mean Thatcher gets in 79 which I always think is quite a major moment but then a lot of the bands from that 80s period especially 
that early one, but you know, there was like a lot of, you know, it was like unemployment benefit and job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes, which kind of gave a lot of people that opportunity to think, well, we can sign on for a few years. And I can remember yeah. also, they didn't feel like that much of a career option. So you didn't think, oh, this is terrible. What will I do next? It's like, well, this is what everyone, all my mates are doing it. So we'll all just do this for a few years. And, and it was quite, yeah, there was no idea of a three-year plan or five-year plan. So it did, it did sort of help things along, really, for people to sort of focus on one thing. And also, as you mentioned, there was gatekeepers like, you know, the John Peel show, the three weekly music papers, and lots of venues in every town and village or city around the country. Which yeah, helps. It, was, it was almost, it was a, a very lively time for music. And, and it was, it was a, all of a sudden, it was like something that had been... Um, a scarcity really became available to everybody. So every, it's, it's like, it was like the internet arriving or something like that. You know, all of a sudden everybody can share share knowledge or everybody can read about books that you hadn't hadn't got your hands on before and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, it became anybody could form a band and everybody seemed to be doing it as well. Every every village would have their own band. Uh, so yeah, I guess an exciting time, and we all fell for that well, let's sit around on the dole and hope nobody hassles us and just do what we want to do as kids. So yes. we, you know, we, we, we made no meaningful contribution to society at all. Um, and we were lazy, arrogant little sods, but it was great. <laughs> I know, we just had to navigate the restart interview, didn't we? Oh, no, we never even had that at that point. There was no no restart, I guess, until the, the, the 80s came around, 82, 83. <laughs> and then Pauline, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, give me back my pen. Yes. So then, you know, because you you sort of go for bass and vocals, don't you? This is this is your piece. Mm -hmm. Did you, did that sort of, did you get the confidence to, you know, because that's quite something, the vocals, isn't it? To sort of get the, the yeah the wherewithal to sort of stand there and be be the front man or woman yeah I, 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 it was difficult I'd say that um but coming back to your allusion to uh to speed and and how efficacious that is to to sharpen the mind and also the enthusiasm you know that's that was something I discovered in the early 80s once we'd moved to Bristol and, and that helped to get me focused I felt at the time toward learning how to play a bit better and also being able to try and present a little bit better on stage although the one thing I found that I was always very weak on was being able to fill the dead air if there was any you know and it's like really difficult if something happens on stage and it's like well you know what, what have you got up your sleeve and it's like well actually nothing at all we prefer not to be there <laughs> yes it's it's the it's the joy of being able to have you know loose chat while um keeping it together but then you know as as the decade went through this is your you did a kind of a, a sort of a self-titled you know I guess compilation um cassette for the first bit then arise on alternative tentacles which is kind of one of those you know hip and happening labels how did that all sort of come together actually because that's that's quite a jump because one thing now you know what a lot of bands have issues with is um or that thing of progression, you know, if you if you sort of mm -hmm. been doing something for a year or two and you're still not in the same, if you're still in the same place, it's getting a bit depressing. But luckily, there is that kind of potential being played on the radio or getting mentioned in the music papers, and getting a record label, which now everyone thinks, God, that would be so nice. So, alternative alternative mm -hmm. tentacles is one of those, you know, pretty amazing labels, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, to to fill the gaps in that discography, um, the first release that we ever did was a a self-titled cassette 
and we just decided to call ourselves Amoebics after we had changed from the band with no name. And that was made by myself and Stig and I think it was Norman at the time. A spray printed, a spray painted cover. We sold six copies to our friends and, uh, and that was the end of that as an experiment. But at the time I was working as um, a freelancer in, in, in inverted commas for the Tavistock Gazette. And the guy there, so he promised me 12 pence a line um, if I go out and review any any interesting bands that were happening at the time. Yes. So I, I ran this little, I ran a little column called Rob's Review, uh, and one of the one of the bands that I went to see was Crass, and I gave them a copy of this tape, uh, which they responded to and said, "Well, we'd like to put out one of the songs, University Challenge, from that tape on on the first Bullshit Detector, which was like a compilation album of a lot mm. of the." A lot of the completely unknown bands at the time around around the UK. So our first our first release was the cassette. The first uh, really known one was on Bullshit Detector, but that was the the songs were so completely different from anything that happened later on. It wasn't until we'd gone through a period of living um, on the moors at, at Martin's house and then subsequently moving up to Bristol that we put some money together between us and we recorded our first single, which was a Who's the Enemy EP. Um, and after that, we recorded a, a single called Winter with, with a, a B-side, the beginning of the end. And after that, there was a, a, a kind of mini album EP called No Sanctuary. And all of these were through the label um, Spider Leg, which was run by Flux of Pink Indians. Right. Uh, and they, yeah, and they had us there as their kind of a um, default recording studio and engineer was John Loder at Southern Studios in London. Um, so we we done we done the first single off our own back and the and the second single and then for this lengthy sort of middle kind of mini LP we were invited up to London to record it there. So we went up um, spent two or three days doing that. And at that time, I met up with Jello Biafra because they'd come over. The Dead Kennedys were playing with the Bad Brains and they happened to be Hammersmith Odeon uh, for one of those nights. And he came up to, um, to actually, he'd, he'd, he'd seen us playing live as well. Um, so we happened to play at the George Roby at that time. Uh, so Jello had caught up with us there. He liked what he saw. And then he came to listen to the music, gave us a copy of a copy of um, Flipper's generic Flipper album, because he was always into weird, weird and wonderful kind of stuff. And then kind of extended an invitation and said, you know, if you ever need somewhere to go to, um, get in touch. So I stored that information away. And it wasn't until a few years later when we had recorded Arise in completely different situation. Um, and we were unhappy with staying with alternative tentacles, sorry, with, um, with Spiderleg, that I approached Jello. And Amoebics had the dubious honour of being the, the first uh, UK band ever to be on alternative tentacles. And I think to this day, there's only been two bands from the UK on that label as it, as it stands. They did a great deal for us, I have to say. Yes. And you got your image down to a T straight away, didn't you? It was always quite a sort of heavy look to it. You know, there was a sort of a, an atmosphericness, a gothic atmosphericness. Did you really embrace, you know, did you go for the whole package? Was that just something that just resonated with the band or yourself? All of that was totally organic, but the, I suppose the impetus behind a lot of the atmospheric side of Amoebics happened um, on Dartmoor when we were living there in this old 
a manor house with Martin, which is another story altogether, where we were living a kind of nocturnal existence and sleeping during the day, practicing and using what you tend to use when you're a kid. Um, uh, and we developed, we developed a very introspective kind of um, view of our music, and it, it was very much our space. Um, it would simultaneously, we'd be listening to people like Killing Joke and um, Joy Division, um, and maybe Theatre of Hate later on and things like that too, Psychedelic Furs to be fair. Um, but we were taking the darker elements from these bands whilst we were still in Devon and bringing those up with us to Bristol. And it wasn't until we got to Bristol when I rediscovered, if you like, um, metal, um, particularly uh, people like Motorhead primarily, um, but then I got deeply into Sabbath. Uh, and I was a complete, well, to this day, I would say it's the, the most influential band that there's that I've ever known, for, for me personally. Yes, absolutely. I know, amazing. But um, it's amazing, yes. there was Because I, I, I wouldn't say I love heavy metal, but I love Motorhead, absolutely obsessed with Motorhead. Mm. And I love, you know, my brother had a Deep Purple album and a Black Sabbath album. And those are the, you know, that's kind of, that's my rock, really. Everything else just always seems a bit... You know, so it's, it's a bit strange, really, because I can listen to Motorhead and even, you know, the latter work that they did as, you know, they did, I suppose, the new three piece. And it's just awesome. You know, they just absolutely are amazing. But those first three albums with Taylor and uh, Fast Eddie are just incredible mm. pieces of work. The best, and, um, best of their work. Yeah, hugely influential. Um, but I, I, I get what you're saying there, because... There wasn't there wasn't really a whole load of other stuff that I could immediately grab hold of. I I, I couldn't really get into Judas Priest so much. I kind of like Saxon, but they were really cheesy. And I'd go and see as many different bands as I could. Um, but there was there was no sort of conflict for me between liking say Devo or you know um, or or the UK Subs and then going and seeing a heavy metal band. And it seemed funny that I was surrounded by so many people that. Were looking at me sideways thinking what what are you doing you know who are you what why are you involved with this scene it's just like even going out to metal concerts i'd be conspicuously this guy with a spiky mohican who would sometimes get a bit of bit of grief from the from the um from the metal heads you know all the grebos at the time uh so it, yeah it was kind of funny it, it was like um i was in the wrong place at the wrong time but simultaneously i was in the punk thing at the same time too it's just i didn't really think that there were there were strong boundaries between music there was always really good stuff to be found everywhere if you knew yes. where to look this is true music was incredibly tribal at that stage i remember sort of status quo with a band that you really mustn't say anything about you know back then mm. because you just get beaten up and you know even uh. if you if you look like you were enjoying the first beat album you know just can't stop it you know which was 1979 you'd mm. almost get beaten up for being a mod you know so you had to be really <laughs> you had to be that careful in the good old east anglian countryside because That's very true you know, yeah the, the quo the quo were the gods but interesting enough with black sabbath and you must have seen it but there was one of those classic album series and they did black sabbath and they i don't know if it was the first album or the first couple but it was incredible where they were getting their influences from and you know Tommy Tommy Iona 
I think that's how you pronounce his surname. You know, he's like, oh, if you listen to the planets and this bit, you know, I started playing this on the guitar and then Dadi Da played this bit. And then you think, okay. And they came up, you know, they wrote and had musicality, which was like really interestingly deep and came from different places as well as being quite cosmic. And, you know, Mm -hmm. even their kind of ballad, which I can't quite remember what the name is of that song, but it was like, oh yeah, this is kind of a quite a floaty space number, you know, and it's, it, they had such depth to them that just to sort of, you know, I did love Paranoid. I mean, fuck, that's yeah. just amazing. And so but, the, but bloody... the, interesting, the thing about Sabbath is I, I've, I've got a friend of mine who's really, really into jazz predominantly. And I, I, I went on a car journey with her one time and I stuck on um, a couple of Sabbath albums and I was trying to, to illustrate the the musical competence of these people because they do something like you know, planet caravan that's uh, the one uh, yes. which is like the, the, yeah yeah these, these these beautiful moments i'm i'm trying to think who who tony iomi he because he lost the he lost his finger and he taught he taught himself to django to, to play um by uh yeah django yeah and burnt burnt yance or something like that yes yeah so he was he was um he was a very accomplished guitar player, but most of these guys were, you know, they were they were classically trained, or yes. at least they, they they dipped their toe into that. I guess as far as Aussie goes, I mean they they were they were working class kids from Brumby, you know. So it's like they they had they had had a rough life, but still that didn't seem to stop stop um Iomi from becoming a really brilliant, brilliant guitarist given the difficulties he had. Yes. And I being mean... a left hander. And his sheet sheet metal music, but now you can buy his perfume, which is um, it's a bit expensive. So I haven't oh, bought no. it. Oh <laughs> no! Smell of Iomi, That's not yeah. good. Yes, but you know, you think, well, you deserve it after all these years. Just alive. they're all alive. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? So, um, my God, how did I get there? Um, yes. So when you were living there um, as a collective in a house, which is kind of I've had vague experiences like that, but not that extreme. And I remember the Captain Beefheart story with you know um, Troutmars replica, where they they almost can't leave the house because the captain's gone a bit mad. Did, was there a bit mm. of a madness that developed around the band at this stage with being so intensely involved while being you know, out, out, out in a sort yeah. of barren landscape. Yeah. Oh, completely, completely. We 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 invented our own identity because because of this this um, practice that we got into. As I say, it was inverting the daylight and the, and the night. So we would purposely sleep during the day, and we'd get up at maybe six o'clock in the evening, and we'd start our day then, and we would. Um, you know, we'd 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 have a we'd have a smoke and have some cornflakes, and then get to writing songs and write right the way through the night. So we wouldn't really see people or interact apart from every two weeks when you'd have to drag yourself out a bit early and go and go and sign on for the doll in the local local town. Mm. So so we did create a, um, a a kind of numinous psychic space. I think that heavily informed what happened within the band it created its its unique print and its, its unique identity on us we were the only people that were awake at that time you know it's like you have this sense about you're the only people in the world and we were in that respect on on the edge of Dartmoor we were the only people that were there working away at four o'clock in the morning on this weird kind of like um uh, musical project that we were trying to get off the ground Yes. And did you, I mean, just at that age, we love to dabble, don't we? Did people start getting into Alistair Crowley? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's when we came into Martin's sphere of influence, really. He, he'd he been involved with Crowley for 
quite a number of years. Um, and I think that amongst other things contributed to um, his, his breakdown later on whilst, whilst we were there. But yeah, yeah, you, I mean, you do, you dabble in all that kind of stuff. You're trying to find um, conduits of power and expression and also things that are forbidden and interesting that lead you into a place where nobody else has been. So we, we're young and we have inquiring minds and we're prepared to, to try anything that's necessary in order to be able to find the, the new space and the, the unknown. Yes, absolutely. And to scare the elders. We love to scare, <laughs> love to freak out the old people um, when you're young and then you become old. Um, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, always, that's always. So what was the, you know, once the album came out, what was it like as, as the band? Because obviously this is where things get a bit tricky when you think, oh my God, we've now done it and we're, we've got, you know, we've got the new album and touring and sort of getting fans and sort of being part of a scene and not feeling part of a scene, but having, you know, people who are both kind of fans that are fun and sometimes a bit scary. How were you starting to navigate that kind of moment? Well, there were, th there were different periods in, in the Amoebic's life, life meh, journey, really. There was the, the, the Devon, the time when we were in Devon, and then the time when we moved up to Bristol, and lived there for three or four years. And then we moved out to Bath or a little village called Radstock near Bath. Um, and from, the, from the, the move to Bath, that's where Arise um, really started to manifest properly. We'd, we'd already written the songs, half of the songs in Bristol with Virus, who was the original drummer and also the drummer with Disorder at the time too. So we used to share the same drummer on stage and the poor guy, he, was, he worked for his, his money, that guy did. Not that we ever really got paid, but so we had um, we moved over to to Bath and we got a new drummer called Spider and we had all the demos from uh, the, the the build up to Arise and then we got the album out and I recontacted re um, Jello Biafra got a deal with them and put the album out through through Alternative Tentacles but crucially we'd moved away from Bristol and away from the squat scene that we were involved with there and it used to be very much local gigs. Uh, and, a, and a local sort of circuit and when we could we'd try and get up to places like Newcastle or um, Liverpool Planet X or often across to London to some of the squat gigs there and um, so we, we already had a sort of circuit to go out on and we had an audience but I think I think people were quite disturbed by the the move between No Sanctuary the spider leg years and Arise and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them predominantly was the MO of Southern Studios, John Loder, where I was told um, that they didn't like our guitar tone. They didn't, they didn't want to have a rock guitar sound in any of the Crass or Spiderleg record pantheon. Um, so they would make sure you had that kind of fuzzy tinny sound that went with everything at the time, seemed to go all, all the way through the anarcho crust if you like kind of, yes. uh, kind of um, bands so once we took things into our own hands we really wanted to renegotiate and navigate ourselves toward a much much heavier sound because the songs were not designed to be put into that genre or or played in that way we really needed things to have a, a lot of bottom end a lot, a lot of bass, a lot of guts to it, and to be pretty much yeah, heavy metal meets punk rock, and that's what I, that's what I envisioned, and that's what I was excited by at the time, 
and that's what Arise was as an album. It was this this monster of a thing at the time, which confused a lot of people, our fan base, um, particularly, but also um, Jello Biafra himself, who it came down through the channels that he wasn't happy with it at all. It wasn't what he expected because it wasn't a continuation of the crass theme and it wasn't being able to get somebody in the pocket from that scene and distribute through an American label. So Amoebics had gone rogue in, in a sense. Yes. Um, and Arise was not a precocious album. It was just us being able to at last get an album out that we were getting toward being happy with. Yes, and obviously, yeah, at that stage, it was quite a, I don't know, it's a terrible term, isn't it? The, the, is it? God, someone's just bought a book, haven't they, on new metal of the 80s. So I suppose, mm. did you did you sort of like, because there are, you know, it's such a cliche, the anarcho-punk scene, though I love it. But, you know, there is a, there's a look, there's a sound, there's the lyrics, there's the sort of stickers. So did mm. it, were you a little bit like not playing, not playing the game so much? You know, you were... Yeah, absolutely. It, yes. It was because um, actually metal at that stage, unless it was LA rock, was still a bit frowned on, wasn't it? Really, at this stage. Well, it's something something interesting that was happening simultaneously to to where we were going. New metal itself didn't really appear, as far as I'm aware, until the late '80s, uh, '90s, when we would, to all extent, to, to, to all intents and purposes, were dead. Um, but the time when we started to play what we play, we we were getting the attention of the burgeoning underground metal scene at the time. And that later became uh, black metal uh, and all these different offshoots that came from that. And it was it was really like seeing the punk culture um, start in, again in a, in, a, in a different kind of genre specific way. They had these fanzines that were like Xerox, very, very, um, very, very poorly put together terrible band photos you know four guys in a toilet together holding a candle and all this kind of really primitive stuff that um, that we were already familiar with but metal had well, not not um i'm not talking about uh heavy rock or, or heavy metal but the 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 80s metal that became um began to um instill itself and began to actually uh get noticed you had people like metallica starting at the same time when we when we were putting out things like arise and we knew that they'd been dabbling into the punk stuff because they'd taken a bit from punk which was the attitude mm. and some of the uh, the the aggressiveness and also the speed and of course motorhead already had that coming up through the through um through the ranks of hawkwind and pink fairies and things like that too so that was that was uh, that was second nature to lemmy but uh, some of the American bands were discovering this and making this new underground metal, which just wasn't in the same territory at all as uh, as old school, like um, Sabbath and, and Zeppelin and Purple and all this kind of thing. It just it wasn't commercial and it didn't really become commercial for quite some time until you got these bands like Anthrax and Slayer and Metallica almost appearing out of nowhere to the to most people um, in, in, the, in the music public, but um, they'd worked at it. They'd worked really hard and they'd, they'd had their own underground and they'd, they'd made what they, do, what they did work. But I'd like to think that, well, I know, that at the time Amoebics were getting featured in some of these underground metal magazines and people were paying attention and saying, well, this isn't, this isn't a black metal band. It's not a metal band. It's kind of like something a bit weird that's going on here, but we like it. So 
yeah, good. There was a good time for that. Yes, kind of the, at the beginning. Because it was around that time, I suppose it was about, then you got the thrash metal bands. I mean, you're not at all thrash, but I do remember going to see Napalm Death and Extreme Noise Terror down in Ipswich with um, probably somebody other. It was a triple bill. I know it was the only time I met John Peel, actually. I couldn't talk to him, it was oh. too loud. But then, yes, there was that period. Did that, I mean, that didn't really sort of enter your world at all, did it? This sort of, that thrash sound, because it was, it's just quite relentless, isn't it? There wasn't um, a metal scene to it. But then there were bands like The Stupids well, as well. Yeah, to be, to be fair, Napalm Death weren't a metal band. Uh, initially they were a punk band and they you know we, we played a couple of times when they supported us and they were just bloody awful terrible I never I never saw what the attraction in their in their music or anything was at all I didn't get it and then I kind of suddenly realized after Amoebix had died in in 1987 within six months um Peel picked up Napalm Death and people like Heresy and all the rest of it he began to champion them uh, and really pushed them out into the into the public consciousness. They weren't doing anything up until that point. They were still a sort of like underground punk band, really writing writing songs as short uh, um, and as fast as possible. Uh, nothing really to separate them from from anybody else. Just more incompetent in in in, in a way. But um, I think I think I think what Peel did was almost patronising because he picked up on a band with a, an interesting name, Napalm death it's like tee hee hee that's a really funny name and they got these stupid stupid um titles for their songs and they they play ridiculously fast and, and short so he's kind of like he made them into a novelty and then the next thing you know that novelty was spread throughout the student culture and that's when, when that happens you kind of know that things are because things are about to die you know or they're, or they're about to change shape altogether so yes. that, that happened and 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 napalm death um use i guess used appeal as a springboard into success and as a, in amoebics we kind of had this this brewing resentment because we'd we'd given up the ghost by that time maybe six as i say six months or so before and we'd said to hell with this we can't be doing it people don't understand our music they'd, they're not really getting it people aren't responding um but they were still working and they they had they had got the break if you like but to come back to your point there about thrash bands we would often be playing with people like Concrete Socks um, and Napalm Death and a lot of other sort of un unknown, more heresy as well, and uh, sort of punk, punk stroke metal thrash bands. There was a crossover going on at that time. Some people took it more seriously than others. And you had bands like Bristol's Onslaught, who started out as a hardcore punk band and overnight started to have inverted pentagrams and all this nonsense that they thought you had to you had to go with um, to be a metal band. Uh, yeah, and of course, Discharge conspicuously bringing out um, a brave new world at that time where Cal starts to sing like that. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> away, from their, away from their traditional sound. And people, you know, people either liked it or they didn't. So some bands suffered. Ooh. Some some bands that that'll be somebody else in the house. Hey, some bands suffered terribly from that, and, and other bands did pretty well. But as yes. I say, Amoebix was dead by that time. But then, what what about Monolith? Then what what, what was the story with your the second album? That was recorded in 1986, released in 1987. Um, we had we'd kind of like ridden out a rise. We'd been around the place, done a few gigs, and you know, we, as I say, we had this kind of frustration that we didn't seem to be getting the the 
the break that we felt, and it wasn't necessarily to be commercially, but it would have been nice to have been, been recognised rather than being a band that's now recognised posthumously as a, as a cult phenomena. You know, we knew at the time that we had something, but it was it was waiting for somebody else to recognise that, and nobody really seemed to. Um, so, but I can't. I I, I contacted uh, Heavy Metal Records in Wolverhampton um, because they put out a, a band called Accept from Germany um, who did an album called um, Restless and Wild, which which I got hold of and I was, again, it's like one of those bands that I thought were absolutely amazing. And just through the fact that they'd been on this record label, I tried to approach Music for Nations and they weren't interested in, in various other labels at the time, but they picked us up and they said, okay, um, we've listened to the album, we like that, we're gonna put it out. We, we never made really a penny off, off Monolith. It was an absolute, it's a scandal really, the whole story that goes around that, but it's not something that, you know, you can really open up on a, on a radio broadcast because yeah you know, we just we had a really we had a really bad we had a bad experience with that label um and that record oh god that's horrible i mean i know it's a completely different band but um i do remember watching the film about twisted sister and they spent 10 years touring getting signed and then literally the next day again you know the person who just signed you they dropped dead so that's that's that deal and then every and every record label said you do not sign twisted sister whatever you do you know and people kept saying can we no you do not sign twisted sister you'll you know i'll sack you if you say that name again and eventually you know they 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 kind of appear on the tube and then this guy sort of goes actually they're amazing i'm gonna sign them and um yes it kind of happens but they spent 10 years just touring continuously playing and getting yeah. rejected it was kind of one of those ones but obviously they the reason i mentioned that was that they had the horrendous record deals and record label management moments and i mean who you know, doesn't yes yeah, who doesn't? It, but it's it, it is heartbreaking and it is very difficult to navigate because you just think you know you i suppose i don't know there's a sense but, you know, of... to be fair though dave i mean coming back to to monolith i i we sort of had the the impression at the time that we'd almost exhausted all the permutations of playing a and e that we possibly could and we we simply didn't have the musical um we didn't have the, have the musical ability to be able to get any further than we were I, don't, I, I think we've kind of run out of steam too. So, you know, whilst I, I can can moan about the fact that Amoebics did, you know, pretty much chuck in the towel back then, I, I didn't see the point in going on from there because I think we might have just become a little bit of a, a shadow of our former selves, really. So it wasn't really until coming up until 2008 or so that I'd even have thought about the idea and gone and done something else around that band, which we never we never intended to at all. Right. God, that was it. So you really did the Jim Morrison. That was the end for the, the musical moment, really. God, that was quite yeah. that's that's quite something. But then how do you navigate that kind of the post-band experience? Because because obviously um, you know, that's been a good part of your adult life. In fact, all of your adult life has been in the band and you know, sort of nearly eight years of, of sort of solid working and sacrifice and sort of focus. So how do you then navigate that next minute? Because um, often people just feel completely lost and like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm. Springsteen once said that uh, rock and roll allows us the, the um, benefit of an extended adolescence. And he was right, because when you get into bands and things like that, you don't have any of the normal day-to-day -day responsibilities to to deal with but 
at the end of Amoebics, I was in a relationship and had a kid and was kind of being pushed toward this idea about you should be a more responsible father figure. And I, I really didn't know what that involved at all in life, but I kind of guessed that it wouldn't be quite the same as it was before. You know, it was trying to trying to juggle a couple of things together and not having any money or any other future prospects and being able to look at the band and say, well, what's that doing for me at the moment? It's kind of, well, it's more of an appendage that's just hanging around just now and it's not really doing anything for itself. It's not, it's not taken off. It's not realized what the potential that we saw in it. And we knew, I mean, both, both Stig and I knew that this was something special that we were doing at that time. And we, we willfully brought that into, um, into manifestation in order to be able to put this, these ideas across, but it just didn't get picked up. You know, it would maybe, I think maybe it was too early for people like Peel to be able to, to finally navigate toward the new phenomena mm. of punk meets metal. Um, because we've been doing that for some years before anybody else. Um, but you know, that's, that's just the way it was. So the, I, I guess I, I thought, well, right now I'm going to have to find out what, what life is about, you know, how you, how you go from here, what you do with your life. And I made a series of glaring mistakes and errors and also, you know, good decisions along with that. And um, after the time that the band had folded and it that ended up with me two or three years later, um, disappearing off to a remote Scottish island and cutting all ties with everything to, to do with music and to do with the, the, the people that had been following us and everything like that. And I just, I, I tuned that radio off altogether. Uh, as I say, there was no bridge at that time. Um, it was a remote Scottish island. It was somewhere, there was no internet. There was you know, barely telephones in some places. So I could just say to hell with it. This, I've, I'm going to have to do something else. Yes. So, you know, you manifest manifest that creative energy in a different way. You do. And, and this is very exciting because you make swords, which is the most extraordinary artwork I've ever seen. I've never really, I've never met a sword maker, but I've been looking at your website and going, my God, they're extraordinary. So, I mean, these are incredible works of art, aren't they? I mean, they are phenomenal and um, mind blown, actually. So, how, I mean, how do you go from nothing to being a master craftsman because that's that is in itself is no easy feat and let's face it we didn't have youtube in those days and even library books were probably not that good on the how to make swords section so my yes girlfriend the, my girlfriend at the time when i when i when i came to sky said you have this ability to keep on reinventing yourself and i don't think that's because i i i, I want to it's because there's an imperative with me to always try and manifest whatever it is that I'm trying to do or the, the whatever whatever impetus is coming through me so I've, I've always been a creative person when when the music was turned off that archetypal energy um had to manifest somewhere else uh, so I I'd I'd come to Sky I'd, I'd as I say turn my back on everything from beforehand and started to delve into subject matter that I was interested in which like the occult um, comparative mythology um, some sort of Jungian psycho psychology based stuff too so reading a lot as an un uneducated um, un un unformally educated um, young man 
and trying to to make some sense of the world around me and with this baggage of stuff particularly arthurian mythology of course comes this these numinous symbols of you know the sword and all that kind of stuff that goes with it so it threw into my mind the inquiry i wonder how you make a sword or if anybody makes swords these days so i took it upon myself to try and find out how you do that as a kind of as a project really back then there was no internet uh, there was no no formal schools for anything like that because it's essentially a lost art so what i did was i started to uh, get hold of the exchange and mart and write around all these old antiquarian bookshops and try and get anything that they had on arms and armor or making making swords or knife making the rest of it and that was not not very successful at all because there didn't seem to be anything that was written by anybody that shows you how to do this it was just pictures of things um and it wasn't until about three years into this quest of having built my own forge and banging away at pieces of metal that I found a, a book by an American author which kind of showed you how to do everything from the ground up including um, the different types of steel that you could use and combining steels together making exotic kind of like katana Japanese sort of um, uh, pattern welded steels viking stuff and that was that was my inspiration to finally sort of take off with it so I treated it as my own um, rehabilitation because the, what had taken me to, to Sky ended up being a motorcycle accident where I'd broken my arm and trashed my bike and I turned up on the island with a with a with a broken arm uh, and that was being mended at the time so this was kind of like a way of a way of helping the wrist and help helping to strengthen the arm again from from that injury. I worked in the hotels in the evenings um, read when I could and just practiced working with a fire and an anvil and leather and wood, iron, steel, and, and some jewelry and bits and pieces. And I had to teach myself. So it, it became a quest for learning several different skills because traditionally um, the, this, the craft of the swordsman or the sword maker, uh, you've never had somebody that really does the whole lot. It's generally speaking, there's somebody who makes a blade and then it's handed mm. on to the next person who makes the hilt or, you know, in particular to different cultures are their own ways of ornamenting their weapons. So you get very, very typical Scottish claymore styles of basket hilts. You've got Viking swords who have these very, very ornate um, pommels and, and cross guards and configurations, broad, full of blades and all the rest of it. So each culture tends to put its own imprint into its weapons maybe that's because of these particular up here as we, as we touched on before the program because of these long winters here where you could be sat in front of a fire and um, whittling away with a knife or making something or just ornamenting something that you already have to make it uniquely yours so i had to learn how to be um a metal worker uh to a degree a woodworker and to work with 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 leather and and to, to actually inset and work with gold and silver and all the rest of it too so it's been a yeah it's been an interesting journey that part and it's i'm 32 years into doing this now Thank but God. it didn't start out as a business it started out as being something that i felt i had to do in order to be able to understand why the sword was such a, a living archetypal symbol particularly with a, within us in in european culture and how when you mention sword to to anybody they immediately have a picture in their mind it's very visceral um so I, I didn't approach it from the martial side it was as i say from the psychological and magical side and that was really 
yeah, that was that was that was the, how I began on this journey. Yes, well, I suppose my, my introduction was Rick Wakeman's, you know, King Arthur album, which which was all about, you know, and then Romans, you know, the Romans and their little swords, and then, you know, we used to yeah. sort of have all those kind of things where we were little boys, kind of hitting each other with sticks, you know. And, well, you remember uh, Broadsword and the Beast by Jethro Tull? Oh God, yes, absolutely, yeah. so, yes. So I so I ended up working in uh, Ian Anderson's steading. And um, so you know, he was the singer from Jethro Tarr and he basically lived, I can see, I can see it from here pretty much. Um, he lived here on Sky and, and started up the Sky fish farms, basically introduced salmon farming onto the West Coast. Yes. So, um, as, uh, as, you know, as, a, as a tributary to his, to his work within, within the band and things like that. So yeah, yeah. So I ended up working in his, his place and he'd been the person behind Broadsword and the Beast, but that, that just kind of came, came about for some weird reason, synchronistic. Yes, well, and just, I mean, because Lemmy was always very into his collecting of Nazi um, memorabilia, but also yeah. he was very into knives and daggers, wasn't he? He was, I mean, did you did you understand, because he was always going on about his German daggers and, you know, mm. went into his little side room. It's like, oh, interesting. Oh, my God, a lot of swastikas here, Lemmy. Um, that's yeah. fine. We all need to collect something. I mean, do, do you sort of know what that, is what he was talking about with you know like the germans the sort of you know the dagger the swords and no it wasn't swords was it but you yeah, know he's, he, I mean, he's very specific well it was very specific i guess in his in his collector's tastes you know people people collect different things um so he wasn't wasn't yeah i, I understand i understand what he's talking about with the with the bluffwaffe daggers and all this kind of thing um and the swords and the adornments and stuff but I tend to, most of my work tends to be medieval European, I would say. Yeah. I don't, I don't do daggers. I used to, but I don't so much anymore. I tend to, to find, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm more into making swords really. Yeah, and just on that front, because because they're so ornate, you know, you get the blade, which is amazing. Do you actually make the ornate bits where the hand is and the sort of the casing so someone can't just chop you is that all your work as well because it is kind of bogglingly amazing yeah i do i do ev everything is done from raw material here so i work from from basically uh, a, a billet of of um medium carbon spring steel starting off and then i'll, I'll you know i'll use whatever wood that i need to use for the for the grips and i will i'll make the 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 handles and the guards and all that kind of stuff up either either from from raw metal and sheet or or, or fabricate them using um, lost wax method and this kind of stuff so so I do you know I point people around my workshop here and show them that this is this is how it starts this is how things proceed it's almost like I have a, a little sort of blue Peter thing going on you know here's here's one I made earlier <laughs> yes absolutely the process I mean, it's boggling and on the jewelry front because everyone loves the Celtic kind of symbol and rings is that one that you developed after the you know or alongside the swords or was that you know your first go at sort of metal work no the the jewelry was a sub subsequent or consequent thing really um of making swords and the ability to be able to go into detail and do stuff and really being prodded by my wife she said she'd say can, can you make me this or can you make me this you know I'd sort of have a go at that and she said well you know you should really start selling these so I was like, oh, do I have to but if I make a few few articles of jewelry then I put those up and they just go you know so it's like I, I'm I don't know how this happened but I'm incredibly busy all the time although I've 
maintain what I think is a pretty good work-life balance here. And I've always said I never work at weekends and I always work to the point during the day where, where I feel that the kind of like the creativity is beginning to dry up a little bit or you're just feeling like getting a bit tired and not concentrating properly so I don't have a I don't have a great work ethic but I have a um, a massive backlog of work so I've got about two and a half years waiting list at the moment and that just seems to go on and on and on all over the world you know it's crazy Blimey, that's amazing so look that's amazing chapter um so then you know you then the music comes back what happens what happens in the late o years that sort of made you feel drawn back to playing or listening to music again well i wasn't really interested in it at all until i was contacted by this guy called roy wallace who was doing he was working with ian glasper who's a, a journalist who did a series of books, um, very incisive work about um, about the anarcho-punk scene, if you like, in the in the early eighties, going right the way through. So he did he'd do different books about different lumps of that, and obviously maybe it's going to appear in there somewhere. So I did a, a an interview for his book, and then Wallace got in touch with me and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear more about Amoebix because the band was such a mystery to everybody and all people have were these old black and white photographs and a few old fanzines and nobody really knew the story that had gone on they didn't know what had happened in in on Dartmoor or um anything anything really about us so he came up to do an interview with me here for another of Ian Glasper's um uh, video um presentations and we talked about the material I had upstairs in an old folder here like you do you know you have your old scrapbook full of bits and pieces so I had that just dragging out all this stuff from from school days and right the way back and and telling the story. And he's saying, well, you know, we've got to get this down on video. So I got involved with his project, which ended up being a DVD called Risen, which was a, a retrospective look at Amoebix and a full talk about the band with members past and um, and also other sort of luminaries from the scene and people and, and people that had come off from that, you know, and people like Neurosis and stuff like that too. Who'd, who'd subsequently kind of made uh, made ground from what Amoebix had really started. The um, DVD was, it was a, a small success, I guess. It, it wasn't a great seller or anything like that, but it, it, it kind of piqued people's interest. And at the end of when we'd actually finished making it, I was down in, in uh, rural uh, County Antrim with him doing the editing process. And he's saying, well, you know, would you consider... Uh, putting the band together again it's like oh i knew this this was gonna come up it's like <laughs> no really i said well I had, a, I had a great excuse prepared which was like well maybe stig can do it stig was not in a particularly good space at that time and it, i thought well perhaps that's going to help him out and maybe give him a bit of focus and bring him out of that at that time in his life but my my saving grace was well spider can't possibly do it because he's got tinnitus and he never ever wants to play drums again and that was true enough so he said, well, okay, well, you know, well, whatever, we'll just leave that one as an open question because it would have been nice to put a couple of songs on the end. So again, synchronistically and and, and uh, all of that stuff, coincidentally, I had just created a MySpace site and I was contacted by this woman called Alicia from a band called 13, who were from, um, I think it's from Georgia actually in the United States. And she had been writing to me about this fella called Roy Mayorga, who was a big fan of Amoebix and it had gone through the New York punk scene 
for a band called Nausea over there. I didn't know any of these bands because, as I say, I cut off. So I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about anybody or whatever, what anybody's relationship was to anybody else. So she has to tell me these things. Yeah, this guy is a great drummer. He's an all-round. He's a, uh, he's he's an engineer. He's a producer. He's a drummer. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a yeah, and he's also a huge Amoebix fan. So I'd kind of stored that away in the back of my mind because I hadn't heard from her for quite a while. I literally got off the plane, got back home from, from Antrim in Inverness, back to Sky, um, and then I'd, I opened up my laptop and I got a message from Alicia. She's saying, listen, I'm really sorry, I've not been in touch for the last eight months, but I was involved with um, Hurricane Katrina and lost a lot of friends, lost my flat and all my possessions, and I've only just managed to get my ship back together to the stage where I can recontact people. And by the way, here's the telephone number of that guy that I was telling you about, Roy Moroga. And I thought, well, how, M- 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 I'm thinking this is a little bit bizarre. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so I've got a telephone number in my hand, literally a few hours after having come back from this question. And I thought, well, what the hell? You, you've got to follow these things. I, I've always followed the doors that have opened. I phoned him up um that night and talked to this guy and say you don't know me but you know I, I used to play for a band called Amoeba he's like dude and I'm going I'm going on about the situation there he said dude are you telling me you like you want me to play in the band I said well yeah well how do you feel about this in a fucking heartbeat brother it's like oh, okay this is this is good so <laughs> all right so what what do I do about this it means I've got to pay for your flight to come across here I've got to look after you and take you over to Northern Ireland try and get Stig up there um which is going to be a little bit of a, a chore in, in itself, and then try and, and and revisit some of these old songs. So we did that. I'm going to ramble on here a little bit, but this is the story, you know. So it's like we we started working with Roy Mayorga, who's who was playing for people like Soulfly and Sepultura, and he he, he um, was jamming a couple of albums for Ozzy at one point. Or so he's been in and out of places. Plays from Ministry most at the moment, yes. but an amazingly accomplished drummer. Um, yeah, he's a new ministry guy, but uh, of course he was that kind of like missing link that we could have really have done with back in 1987. Somebody knew what they were doing; they could really focus on stuff, and they knew how to write properly and how to make songs dynamically work. Now we'd we'd done that in a very very primitive sense, and we'd claimed our own ground back then. But what we needed to do was to reinvent Amoebix with a completely different kind of um, rhythmic sector to it, but also try and find out whatever it was that would have been lurking within that band. So that that came, that basically ended up with us re-recording three of the old songs, putting that on, out on this DVD. And then at the end of that project, Roy said, well, what do we do next? He's like, what do you mean? He said, well, we have to go on from here. It's like, oh, right, okay. So he pushed us toward doing an album and doing a tour we're doing two tours in the end in the States, which were ridiculously successful. Uh, and kind of, oh, you know, it's it almost like that, watching the, the Anvil documentary, where you just, you don't feel at the time that anybody appreciated what you had to do and you've died in effect. But 25 years later or 20 years later, you come back out and all of a sudden there's this massive crowd of people, old and young, who have been absorbing your music and all of this time. So it was a bit of a dream come true thing, you know? Yeah, uh, And having people responding yeah, responding at that deeper level to what we've been doing uh, and which we felt was completely in vain. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm only thinking about that as we're talking now, but it seemed to vindicate a lot. 
Yes, I could imagine. And it must have, uh, yes, like you said, it, it has that kind of um, emotional thing of like, they do understand, they get it in the end. Because otherwise it would have been a bit of a, I get it, I'm just guessing, right? But, you know, at least you could have gone, at least it kind of um, correct, not corrected, but it filled in that sort of potential void or the the gap that wasn't there because you know that you did that work and then it's all over and then you just get on with the rest of your life but so um, well, the americans say it gave closure it's a closure that's that would have been so much better <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know i don't i don't know those kind of phrases at all but it, no kind of that thing you know it, uh, yes absolutely and also you know and there's another corny one like and there's a sort of healing process but and in, I mean in a way you know it's it's all right you know sometimes you feel like that feel you feel possibly a lot better for doing and going through that it's a bit like sometimes meeting up with an old friend and sort of being able to be a bit honest about some of the things both ways and then sort of just not giving each no, no more blame or no more you said that and you just say look I wasn't always brilliant and and they go, oh no, I wasn't either. And you go, oh, well, that's fine. Then we can we can shake hands and move on a bit, and you know, readjust our memories of each other when we when we sort of move on from this moment of just reconciliation without becoming big best friends again. That's the thing, you know. Yeah, I think yeah, exactly. I mean, if we if we don't learn from the the process itself, we never actually get these opportunities to move on and find out what the next part, what the next chapter is. And I've always tried to to be acutely aware of all of these signals and these signs and what they're telling you, what doors open and what doors close and what's, what's happening, generally speaking. So it's like I've got eyes all over the place where, where these things are concerned and waiting for, waiting for these, these moments of resolution, but also the ones that allow you to move on into the next phase too. Yes, I think that's that is the the nicest thing that there's there's nothing worse than having to block something, kind of something that happened, you know, in one's life. I'm not talking about childhood stuff. I'm talking about you know being in scenes in your teens and your twenties or whatever, and then you know, things start so well, then you get the honeymoon period, then you get the moment, and then it all crashes. And the only thing you can remember is the end. And it's quite nice to go back and somehow sort of pick it apart. And then sort of go, right, that was that bit, which isn't great. And that was the good bit, which was fantastic. But it's sometimes a difficult process to go through that. And um, and once you can, so you don't you don't either have to block it, because actually blocking things take a lot of energy, which I find is quite hard work as well. So it's nice not to have to yeah. give energy into stuff that you block in a way. Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd agree with you there altogether. There's, there are the, the, the good with the bad and all of this stuff makes up the whole, really, doesn't it? We are turning into hippies now, so we don't get the yin without the yang there, you know? <laughs> I was singing the lyrics to The Flash and Blade, you've got to fight for what to, it is right. And all that you <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a classic, isn't it? But then, yeah, so then you have your band moment and, and you know, you have a bit of closure and healing and, and good times and get to see America and go, yes, the fans get us at last, this is brilliant. And did you manage to sort of, yeah, and that was all good, but then... You you form another band, which is quite mm -hmm. amazing. Did so? Did that did that feel a little bit like a kind of a bit of a cleansing and a bit of sort of I'm, I don't know why I'm doing the hand thing, but did you just feel a bit like actually I can be you know the energy is flowing a bit here and and suddenly other doors are opening of perception? Yeah, 
the, the the opportunity presented itself at the end of um, the last Amoebix album, which was Sonic Mass, to to go out and tour that. Like, but it, I kind of, you know, I can see it's kind of like the rock and roll thing. It's like we make an album, you go out and you tour it, and then you sell the merchandise and all that stuff. So it all gets a bit a bit drab. Although I do enjoy playing live. However, within the band, we had. We, we had a pretty much a big fallout about that because some people weren't ready to go out um, and others were. So it created this sort of impasse, which uh, it really put the pause button. And I found that really frustrating. I thought, well, you know, after all this time, it would have been ideal for us to be able to pick up and run with this and do something really, really constructive with it. Because at last we got, we got an audience that we wanted um, and we've got the, um, we'd, we'd, We'd got the, the 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 possibilities of venues and festivals and things like that were all laid out in front of us. It's like you've got a buffet there which you can just help yourself from if you just say yes. But we couldn't for various reasons. We don't need to go into that here. And that's again, it's probably one of these things that, in hindsight, will prove to be a good idea. But at the time, for me, it was really really frustrating. So it was a case of calling an end to the band again and saying, well. That was good. That that little venture was great. Um, uh, what do I do now? And I I found myself with a whole bunch of um, a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of creative energy um, that I'd got hold of really, and that I needed to be able to manifest. And it just ended up with me sitting down and writing songs and writing and writing and writing and writing. And this was maybe a year and a half, two years. I was writing stuff um, until I had so much material here. I didn't know what to do with it. So I was trying to find, I was trying to go out and, and um, get other people and say, you know, I, I'm trying, trying to put another project together. Anybody interested? I went through various people who I won't mention any names now because they're people that are quite well known in different sort of areas of the, of the music scene. Um, some people liked the idea. Most people didn't. Most people didn't get it at all until, you know, until really um, I'd gone quite a long way along that, that road and everybody appeared within within the same week all the members of the band went click 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 into place friends of friends acquaintances or whatever um and it became a reality and i knew it would but i just didn't know when i, I had that kind of like personal sense of i don't know um i don't know whether this is going to happen i don't know whether i've got the the enough willpower to make it happen and then it did so put an album together, use it basically um, between, again, the, the USA, Canada and Isle of Skye. So we had the, the drummer from Voivod away, who had kind of like a, 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 a well-known early um, Canadian thrash metal band, still playing to this day, really, really pr prolific and they're very sort of cult. And then a couple of friends that I bumped into on tour in Minneapolis, who happened to be best mates, both both great guitarists. Uh, and I decided that I was going to do bass on the album myself. But when it came to being live, because of the, the technicality of the, the stuff, it's kind of like patting your head and run, rubbing your tummy. I couldn't do both at the same time. So I had to get a bass player in to be able to do that. And it turned out a friend of mine around the, around the, uh, the coast here were, uh, was basically wanting to do the synth so put the album together 
started to trot it around different record companies and again it was like it's really revisiting the old days nobody was interested at all until the guy that um that i got to master it pushed it over to relapse and they picked it up and ran with it and it was a great success it was a, a really really well received album uh, it, so i'd never kind of I hadn't anticipated it, but it just kept on getting number one in all these year-end spots. A lot of metal magazines. We got a number three album of the year in Rolling Stone, all this kind of stuff. It was like a real proper album, which had vindicated, again, that word, um, all of this time spent sitting on my hands waiting for something to happen. So it was yes. great. Blimey, that was, yeah, because you do hear a very creative point during this period, don't you? I mean, this is like what bands are like when they're 18 and they're starting but you've you've hit it sort of much in a slightly later decade but with the energy I suppose like people like Ian Anderson who still has this kind of ability to still bring out new albums and do world tours so yes your your energy at this stage is um, quite prolific actually isn't it and focus yeah well it, well it was <laughs> it was but uh, yeah so that, I mean, that, that spilled across into a second album, which in retrospect, I think was hurried. Um, I don't think we should have done that so quickly. We should have taken a bit of a breather in between. And you, you get that difficult second album. It's good. A lot of people like it more than the first album. But for me, it's not quite, it doesn't quite have the same vibe. And the first Tower Cross album was really, it was for me, it was like, um, it was like the first Sabbath album. It's, it had it had a lot of atmosphere, a lot of interesting stuff going on. And because I was the sole songwriter there, it still reflected that kind of naivety that I have as a musician. So I'm not able to do anything complex. So these very, very simple songs, but if you like getting the best out of them and finding out the organic elements there and making this at times sort of haunting musical landscape there. So that's that's what I still feel really, really pleased with the first album and the last album by Tal Cross. I think these are these are great and they're ones that I will put alongside Sonic Mass and Arise as being the four great albums that have manifested yes. in my long career. So after your last album, Messengers of Deception, is that have you got more material that you're working on or have you drawn a line after after that one with obviously the pandemic and all sorts of um things being hit the pause button being hit or is there is there more in, you know project that you've you've got to work on well the the as you probably know that i mean the, there was some controversy over the the album itself and um, which led me to go out on my own again and re-record the whole album um myself and a friend who's a drummer and bringing other people into it and putting it out under my own steam. So re-recording, re but also putting out on, on what I see as my own record label now, which is a, a friend of, of ours from childhood, from, from Tavistock, who runs his own record label down in Cornwall, Easy Action Records. And yes. he, he keeps the whole of the Amoebics catalogue and has been re-releasing, remastering, reworking all of the stuff that we've done. So he's got Amoebics and Tau Cross all in a small label run by one guy. There's no, it's no big um, rock and roll show down there at all, but he's doing a fantastic job with that. And I'm, I'm kind of happy to have put that um, 
that collection into trustworthy hands and somebody that's not going to have to push it too hard. They just they've already got what's needed. They just need to yeah allow things to be to be um, available to the public really. So, so sorry, what, what was the question there about the <laughs> new material? Yeah. No, but I just um, like just on that, did you so you recorded the album with a band and then you had to re-record it again, but without the did is that what you just said? Oh, so I'm just sort yeah. of that's fine. That's what I said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was yeah, I think you just said that. Right. Okay. That must have been a hell lot of work. How did you actually just on the <laughs> did you have to yes? How did you did you, how did you manage that? By the way, uh, it was it was a lot of work, but I was um, yeah I was kind of stubborn, and I I wasn't going to allow that all of that work to go un to, to basically be buried, um, which it was at that point. So I I decided to basically go on my own, make it happen, um, and dig into my pockets, find a way to get into a studio find um people to be involved in this right and approach it again but the the good thing about this for me personally was whilst the first attempt of the album is pretty good uh the the subsequent one was infused with personal uh anger and um uh disappointment to a degree some bitterness about what had gone on which you know uh you as john lyden says anger is an energy you just use these things and say all right well that's legitimate where does it go well, what it does is it pushes itself into the music and brings a new life into that which i was you know, as i say with the second album i'd felt we could have we could have been in danger of just being another label act which keeps on pumping out stuff and it's very formulaic and nothing new really happens whereas the excitement that greeted the first Tau Cross album for me returned with doing the 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 last album Messengers of Deception and having to do it in this way so yes. it created some unique challenges which I'm not sure whether anybody in history has done this before um in the in music history has had an album uh, cancelled, uh, lost the band, and then rewritten the entire album and re-recorded it from scratch. No, it's I an interesting that's, um, inquiry. That's a first. I mean, that 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 subject was it a case of of kind of people not understanding the situation, but that that kind of arose to do with this kind of um, controversial thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being oh. <laughs> yeah, being... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll skirt around that a bit, but yeah, that's um, fine. <laughs> it was really that because the the thing is, I've got, um, yeah, it, it was kind of. I'm still in touch with fifty percent of that band who I see as dear friends, and you know, to be fair, I see them all as they've been. We've had a really, really brilliant time, an excellent, excellent time together, and uh, I wouldn't change a minute of that at all. So, I'm not really, I'm not full of resentment toward them or anybody in particular at all. It's just I kind of ran with the frustration. Uh, of the of the whole the whole situation itself so i don't blame anybody um for anything at all i completely understand i i, I know how things roll uh, and and it's also given me uh it's given me a much more um honest and genuine appraisal of the mechanics behind the music industry and also you know um the idea about how um 
rebellion and um, controversy is is uh, is contrived, generally speaking. You know, and if you if you if you actually are one of those people that's on the outside, you ain't gonna get very far with that son, you know. So yeah, I you know I just I've always done what I've what I've done, and I've I've tr I, I guess I tried to explain to everybody that as a as a rock and roll punk rock musician, this is my job. Mm. I'm I'm always supposed to be pushing the boundaries. I'm always supposed to be asking questions. I'm always supposed to be outside of everybody's comfort zone. That's my MO, you know? It was never gonna be any different. That's why Amoebics was different to anything else. That's why when Tau Cross turned up on the scene, it was a breath of fresh air to a lot of people that had gone, that had had a sort of stagnation in within the, the metal scene particularly, where everybody's more concerned about um, sounding like or being formulaic or fitting into this or that genre, whereas I've never actually had any of those, um, what would you call them, um, any of those bonds really around me as, as, as a person, as a musician, as an individual, as a creative person. I've never ever bent the knee to anybody or uh, or acceded to anybody's requests and demands. It just doesn't happen. That's not my life. It never never has been, it never will. No, no, that's cool. So yes, I mean, <laughs> I suppose it's like, yeah, cause I don't, you know, I haven't really followed that controversy, controversial thing that you, you thanked. I mean, did you did you sort of realise at the time, you know, or do you think, oh yeah, I could see that that would have caused the problem, or was that was there a reason, you know, for sort of thanking that person? I'm just, you know, I'm not, you know, if you want to say let, let's not talk about that, then I'm fine. But I'm just curious. <laughs> well, broad, broadly, yeah, broadly speaking, um, naivety on my part, um, because when I when I when I discover new information or um, things that I didn't know before come to, come to my knowledge, I'm excited. And I want to share that with everybody. It's like I'm a kid who wants to share his sweets with everybody. And you don't realise until you come across particular things that they're sweeties that not everybody wants to even look at because mm. they can't, they, they just cannot deal with it. And I, I can understand that. And I, I understand that because I was exactly the same myself. It's just that I've always maintained an inquiring mind um, and looked for not truth, not truth with a capital T, truth with a small t, because there is there's no uh, there's no um, objective truth as such. You know, there is there is the truth, but as for human beings, there's no there's no real truth. There's just permutations of things. So as I say, as I said before, that's my job. Um, I enjoyed reading this that that book, and I thought others would get something from it too. But that's that's naivety on my part. Um, and I, as I said at the time, I don't apologize for anything at all. I'm If if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am today. And it's like a lot of things, a lot of bad things happened immediately after that. It was a very, very challenging time. I've lost a great deal of friends, acquaintances, and people very close. But on the other side of that, I've kind of really, gained a lot of people who understood the original spirit of whatever it was I was trying to manifest the whole punk thing which was about you do what you do and do it to the very fullest of your ability you manifest that stuff 
And that's been important to me. So I don't mind p paying that price. And I don't mind having to once again reinvent myself because this is what happened. As I was saying, my girlfriend at the time when I came to Sky said, you, you, you have this ability to reinvent yourself. So I became from Amoebix into a swordsmith and then Amoebix died again. So then I had to make a new band and then that band died. And now what do I do? Well, I'm writing new material. I'm writing new songs. Um, but I don't know at the moment how that's going to go. I've got musicians around who will play them. Um, and we could make possibly another album, but it's a slow process. It's like I, I, I've been punched in the gut over this and I'm not going to feel sorry for myself or whine about it at all because I understand it. I understand the whole dynamic. Um, but I also feel that it was really, really important. And the relationships that have evolved from that with people that, that understand the principle of debate, discussion, reason, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, all those things that we thought were encapsulated within this free and easy music scene. Um, but when you see that they're, that it's kind of like, it's kind of paper thin in some places, yeah, well, you have to adjust accordingly. So I'll see, I will see, but I, for now, I'm still a creative person. I'm making swords, I'm writing music, uh, and I'm growing some show carrots this year, the longest carrots that you could possibly grow, and almost over two feet. They'll have to see how they turn out. I've never grown anything before now. God, I wonder if they'll be very tasty. Yes, that, that's quite a yeah, big carrot. Yeah, that, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. That is the problem. <laughs> it's a show that carrot. Problem. I mean, I, I do think show carrots and show onions are quite unbelievable, but um, are they very tasty? But, you know, you can always put them well, in the soup. I've been watching the wrong videos again. See, I've been watching the wrong stuff on YouTube. That's what that's what happens. Go yes. for the bad information. So I've got like, yeah, I'm trying to grow grow giant carrots, but I actually want carrots to eat as well. So like you say, there's a there's a bit of a problem there, isn't there? You might have to put a lot of hummus at the end of them. Did you but did you plant them by seed or did you buy the little plugs to put them in? I planted them by seed. So basically made a two-inch, two-inch square box, filled that full of sand, and oh. then bored, bored holes right down to the middle of of that 16 holes filled those holes with compost and then put three seeds on the top of those so if you imagine there's all these it's like a it's like polka dots on the top of a field of of uh, of um uh, sand so then you start these carrots and they grow down into the compost but they've also got the advantage of the sand yes the sand is important but did you plant them in a waxing or waning moon this is the trick could have been a deal Dave, well i like you know i like where you're going here because we do plant by the moon here good um, oh, and uh, i it's basically there are flower days there are uh, root days and all this kind of stuff because we keep bees so yeah. i've got because i sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna go go to one side here but i've been keeping bees for a while now when i first started on this i didn't realize that i was highly allergic to them until i got stung um, so I've been in hospital a couple of times and had things stuck into me to try and, try and stop that stop that from happening. I'm not um, hypoallergenic or whatever it is. You know, I, no. I've got one of these guns, um, which I haven't oh, had to yes. use thankfully yet. But the thing about the thing about bees is uh, that again, it's one of these things that they they are really placid, particular phases in, in the moon. Also that corresponds with the gardener's calendar. So if you've got like flower days 
they love that. Um, they like root days as well, but they can't stand what's the one. It's uh, it's like onions and things like that. They don't they don't like these other days at all. So if I, I so I'm learning not to go anywhere near them in in those particular days. Don't try and feed them. Don't try and do any inspection because they will sting the living shit out of you. <laughs> and uh, you know, I avoid getting stung. This is true. Yes, I know. Well, uh, it's amazing how many uh, people in rock and roll are known to beekeep. And I've noticed quite a few people with their <laughs> bee, bee gear on. So I, I think it's just kind of people needing to reconnect with something much more solid and something much more sort of um, real, the most important thing in the world. Yeah, well, but you've, you've got Penny from Penny from Crass, you know. So the, 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 the drummer from Crass, Penny Rimbaud. Yes. He's always... Well, he, always but well, he lives yeah. with a guy who's into permaculture, isn't he? Whose name I can't remember. Mm. Probably called Rob. I can't remember his name. But yes, he they do permaculture courses at uh, his place, which I can't even remember. Something House. Oh, Dial House. Dial that's House in Dial yeah. House. Yeah, yes, that's right. He's been doing that. So he's well ahead of the curve with all this kind of stuff. So you've got, I think that the logical conclusion for, for, for old wrinkly punk rockers like me is like punk gardening. That's the, that's the new expression. You know, it's like a return to nature. Yes. Well, I, I saw, I saw, um, I know he wasn't punk, Fish, you know, he was now just Fish, but he was in Marillion. But I oh, remember yeah. the other day he was, well, last year, he was kind of had his greenhouse and was getting all his beds sorted and his vegetable trays. And I was thinking, it happens, doesn't it? Which is good. You know, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all about this. So, and obviously Ian Anderson was right there in the early years. So um, it's yeah. all good. Yeah, yeah it's, there's something sad, but there's something nice about it. Yeah, there's, there's something which is kind of, uh, uh, I, I'm hoping this isn't the end. You know, it's like gardening should not be the end, but maybe it's just, uh, it's just uh, that we, I think all of us, we, we, need a, we need an awareness of nature and the world and how things actually work, you know, because we've got such a synthetic society now and we have this abundance of, of sort of IT stuff and the, the threat of AI and all the rest of that sort of thing that we we've got to be careful not to be too engulfed by that. Yeah, constantly reconnect. Well, it's so also the times when when go on. Oh no, sorry, I was going to say it was supply chains. We 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 you know we for decades we've just been happy that everything is going to be there, and then a supply chain something happens. You say, oh what? Everything's like that hasn't the order hasn't happened. It's like no, there's a problem somewhere else in the world and now we can't get such and such a thing and we we shot so you've got to start growing your carrots and potatoes and you know anything you can store for the winter because you never know yeah you know we never knew ukraine we we never knew ukraine you know exported so much corn you know and food you know we're like oh shit that's a bit of a disaster for next winter so i would definitely yeah keep your carrots going yeah, yeah, I think I, I agree with you on that. Just keep keep the carrots going. I think I'll try to not make them so uh, so gregarious next year. I'll just just stick with your normal carrot, your standard carrot, standard, um, and six inches, three or four different kinds of potato. I think I think that's about it. That's about as good as you could expect from your from a carrot these days. 
Yeah, I think um, that's a good one. I think that's good. I, I mean, good. and also what I've always God, I didn't realize I was going to be talking about salads. But um, <laughs> the thing about salads is that they bolt or they all appear at the same yes. time. You think, and I'm not that keen on lettuce this week, but now I've got 20 lettuces and then they mm-hmm. all bolt the following week. And then it's a really disappointing. Whereas with things that you can, you know, they're not going to get beaten up by a load of weeds and you can store them and then you can use them in the winter time is, you know, cash back really, isn't it? Let's face it. So, yeah. That's and we're, and we're descending now into a very difficult time, I think. I think that we all need to be quite aware of the more you can rely on yourself and, and the, the friends that you've got around you, the better right now, because there's a big storm coming. And I think, you know, I think we're this for our all of our, our generations at the moment is going to be the big one. So I think there's a, an enormous depression which is going to happen. Uh, so we just need to be ready, do the best that we can and remember to look after one another. Because we once we lose a grip on that kind of like responsibility to one another, it just becomes mad out there. Yes, vicious, vicious little buggers. So look, yes, this is I agree with all that actually. Um, and try not to panic at night. Um, so if you could have whispered something like something to your 16-year-old self starting out in this interesting world, I mean, is there anything that you would have just said, oh yes, I would focus on that or I'd keep an eye on you know an open mind on that or I'd read this book I just wondered if there was any particular kind of bit of wisdom that, or philosophy that you would have just kind of or advice that you might have wanted even if they'd ignored you you'd have just said there you go kid have a, just listen to this from an old man yeah you know I think this this there's a couple of things that I think would have been a real real advantage but they Again, it would have everything that you could plant back into a sixteen-year-old would radically alter the trajectory of their life. So it's like yes. you know there are there are there are so many permutations on the on the possible universes that we that we can inhabit from that point. And of course, the further we get away from that, so I'm at fifty, bloody nearly fifty-eight years old, like you, this year. Um, and the further we get away from that, the more permutations there are. You know, so it's what could I do? I would have said. Uh, you, yeah, in fact, okay, I would have said, look after your body, exercise and eat well, learn the piano, um, try to learn to sail if you can, uh, and learn to grow food. I think learning. Yes. And read, read. Keep on reading, keep on absorbing. Yes, I think that's all good. I mean, I'm really big on the exercise front with, you know, in later life because, um, because yeah, that's it, isn't it really? You know, it's amazingly, um, it stops you doing anything. So um, health, look after the body. So there you go. But look, Rob, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And thank you. And just, I love your work, you know, both your music, but your, you know, your swords are incredible and absolutely stunning. So um, yes, have a lovely, yes. Thank you ever so much again for this. This has been amazing. And um, yes, have a lovely summer and enjoy the summer solstice, which is frighteningly only in a week's time, probably. But we've had a strawberry moon. The strawberry moon's been... (laughs) gorgeous so um we just got yeah. so much to look forward to but look keep well and thanks again for this this has been amazing so um yes and if you want i can always send you the link and you can use it if you want elsewhere you never know please do yeah yeah and dave th- thanks for taking the time out as well i know it's been a big lump of your time out there but it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh thanks for 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 taking the time yeah brilliant. yes look take please care send the link. i I'll will stick send that on my, my facebook 
I will. Okay, take care. And all the best. All, right. and all the best for the future. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, take care. Bye-bye. Oh, there you go, dear listener. That's um, that's how you end a phone uh, conversation. I know I could edit it out, but it makes me smile every time I listen to that. Fumbling around, that's me. Anyway, look, I might put that on my gravestone. Um, yes, anyway, a massive thank you, as always, to Rob Miller for giving me the time for that. And as I said, he has got a, an amazing sort of website, which I will give you now. So pen and paper, everyone. It is a um, www.castlekeep.co.uk and has got the most extraordinary work available. So there you go. Um, so yes, a massive thank you. Also, if you want to contact me for some a nice reason, otherwise don't bother, <laughs> just delete it, or just don't listen. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. Anyway, look, have a great week, stay safe.